Next Saturday, we're putting up crosses. How many opportunities do you get to put up a cross? We're going to do it next Saturday, fellas. Come on out. We got three of them to put up, so <laughs> we, we will be doing that. Uh, on the potluck, just a little tidbit of information. Somebody has took it on themselves to do some ribs in a big, big green egg. There will be some ribs. Somebody has took it upon themselves to do some brisket from the big green egg, and we will have that too. But we're doing it a little early because I looked at the weather forecast, and they're saying afternoon rain, so we're going to move it up an hour, try to eat around 1 o'clock. But come on out early and let your children enjoy the farm. So looking forward to it. So everyone, come on out. This morning we're in 1 Samuel chapter 13, and we'll be looking at verses 1 through 15. Up until today, we've been easy on Saul, and Saul is an easy target of disobedience. But for two years, Saul has been in position as king and it's taken a couple years now for Saul to be lifted up in pride. And it's only in chapter 13 uh, that we begin to read things that are negative about Saul. We see in chapter 13 there is this tendency, this trend that is coming forth in Saul. And now he will begin to overstep his humble beginnings. And he did have humble beginnings. And Paul will demonstrate a pattern of disobedience and pride. And we know that pride, I don't care who you are, is a great offense to God. God says he even hates a prideful look. And so how do you give a prideful look? You ever think about that? What is a prideful look? Demonstration. Prideful look. <laughs> like you got it wired or something. That's a prideful look. And Saul, he was privileged to have the absolute best advisor a king could have. He had Samuel the prophet. And instead of Samuel, God didn't let any of his words fall to the ground. Everything Samuel said came about. How would you like to Mr. Trump to have an advisor that would give him nothing but right on information? It'd be a great, great blessing. So let's read 1 Samuel chapter 13, and we'll just start with the first seven verses. Saul reigned one year. And when he had reigned two years over Israel, Saul chose for himself 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash and in the mountains of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent away, every man to his tent. And Jonathan attacked the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. Then Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. 
Now all Israel heard it and said that Saul had attacked a garrison of the Philistines and that Israel had become an abomination to the Philistines and the people were called together to Saul at Gilgal. Then the Philistines gathered together to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and people as the sand which is on the seashore. And they came up and encamped in Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. And when the men of Israel saw that they were in danger, for the people were distressed, then the people hid in caves, they hid in thickets, in rocks, in holes, and in pits. And some of the Hebrews crossed over the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. And as for Saul, he was still in Gilgal, and all the people following him, trembling. There has been a skirmish, not a full-scale war, but a skirmish where Jonathan, Saul's son, has attacked a garrison of the Philistines at Geba. A battle where several hundred Israelites and Jonathan are victorious. But who is it that begins to take credit for the battle? Who takes the victory parade, you might say? It says, Saul blew the trumpet. Hey, Israel, hear of my victory. Jonathan fights, Saul gloats. But this gloating and blowing of the trumpet angers the great multitude of the Philistines. And the Philistines gather together to fight against Israel. They bring up all the troops. And there's 30,000, 30,000 Philistine chariots. That's like 30,000 tanks. 6,000 horsemen. And they have an army that can't even be numbered. It is as the sand of the seashore. And the Philistines, they encamp at Michmash, which overlooks the tiny minuscule for fighting force of the Israel army. Israel becomes terribly frightened and they begin to hide. They hide in caves, they hide in thickets, they hide behind rocks, they hide in holes, they hide in pits. They're hiding anywhere they can hide. And some of them even flee Israel and cross the Jordan River and go down to the land of Gad. But Saul, he's there in Gilgal. And all the people with him are trembling in fear. And Saul, he's in a quandary. He is very much afraid. So let's read verses 8 through 15. Then he waited seven days according to the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattered from him. So Saul said, Bring a burnt offering and a peace offering here to me. And he offered the burnt offering. Now it happened as soon as he had finished presenting the burnt offering that Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him that he might greet him or bless him. And Samuel said, What have you done? That's an indication that something went awry. <laughs> Saul said, When I saw the people and they were scattered from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines gathered together at Michmash, then I said, The Philistines will now come down on me at Gilgal, and I have not made supplication to the Lord. Therefore I felt compelled and offered 
a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people. Because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you, then Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah at Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people present with him, about 600 men. Notice, Samuel gave Saul instructions. Wait seven days, Saul, a full seven days. Not six and a half, not six and three quarters, seven days. Saul is waiting. The people are scattering. They're fleeing. They're leaving as he watches them go. And his little army is dwindling down to nothing. And Saul can wait no longer. So being impatient, Saul takes on the role of priest. And Saul offers up a burnt offering and a peace offering. He's not willing to wait the full seven days. The prophet Isaiah, he tells us, God acts on behalf of those who wait. Waiting, it unites us with the will of God. We can sometimes think, oh my goodness, if I don't do something, it's all going to fall apart. And no doubt Saul is thinking that. But if he would have waited, he would have been united with the Lord. Verse 10, it says that as soon as Saul finished making his offerings, Samuel shows up. Saul runs to Samuel, desiring a blessing from Samuel. But Saul is greeted with, what? Have you done? That's not a greeting of pleasantness. It's not a greeting of small talk. Hey, what's happening? <laughs> what have you done? It's a rebuke greeting. What in the world were you thinking, Saul? And Saul, we begin to see his character come forth, and Saul makes an excuse for not waiting. It's required of him. It's his basic character, and it's a characteristic that he will repeat before he's removed as king or before he dies. I saw the people were scattered from me, so I wanted to make supplication to the Lord. Now, to make supplication means to cry out for God's favor. I wanted God's favor, and I was very much afraid of the Philistines. To, to Saul, he links man's approval equal to God's blessing. I saw the people scattered, and I couldn't wait. 
Samuel in chapter 15, a couple chapters later, will tell Saul, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. And Saul has just made sacrifices to God. But it says Saul felt compelled to offer sacrifices. What a telltale verse that is. Saul, he's being completely disobedient, yet it felt right. He felt that it was necessary. He felt compelled. I heard a definition of obedience in, uh, from Charles Stanley. It's a good one. <laughs> I like Charles Stanley, but anyway. Obedience is doing as God says, the way God says, when God says. Three elements to obedience. Do it. Do it God's way. And do it when God says. Samuel is straightforward with uh, King Saul. Saul, you've done foolishly. You have not kept the commandments of the Lord your God, which was given to you. And Samuel could have said, by me. But here is how serious this feel right disobedience was. This was such a grave error in Saul. Samuel tells him, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. Saul, you could have been great before the Lord, but now your kingdom will not continue. It's not going to go on, Saul. And as we listen to God's word to Saul, we hear that the Lord had sought, has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people because you have not kept the Lord's command to you. Saul, you have brought this on yourself. In this rebuke to Saul... The Lord himself says he sought, has sought, past tense. And he looked for a man after his own heart. We know from Scripture who that man was. It was David. God is already preparing David as Saul is king. God has found the man. And it's he has sought, he has found, and he commanded David to be commander over his people while Saul is still in power. There's a lesson here for all believers. And it's a lesson for any Christian throughout the world. It's a lesson for any generation of time, person after person. And that lesson is be obedient to God. And he says, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you, you have nullified your kingship. You've been removed, Saul. It just hasn't happened yet. Jesus, about a thousand years later, will speak of obedience. And he's very simple, very straightforward about it. If you love me, obey me. There it is. You want to you wanna please God? Obey him. God, as God, 
was the same yesterday, Old Testament, and today, New Testament. God did not say, if it is reasonable with you, obey me. Wow. Have you ever fought obeying God because it wasn't reasonable? Does it make sense to you? He doesn't ask us that. He says, obey me. And sometimes it won't make sense. If you're a person of any authority whatsoever, you have had partial obedience given to you. Maybe it's an employee. Maybe it's a child. Uh, and partial obedience is simply disobedience. It can even be worse than uh, partial obedience can be worse than disobedience. Totally. Let me give you an example. Let me give you a farm example. Back in the 90s, we, Lori and I, had bought a ranch in California. You buy ranches. There's no farms in California. They're all ranches, okay? And it was a good piece of land. But the trees on this, almond trees and so forth, were old, and they're needing to be replaced. A fruit-bearing tree of any sort, whether it be nuts or fruit, has a lifespan. You can only get so many years out of a tree. So I'm in the process of replacing trees on this ranch that we've bought. I pulled out some old almond trees cut up the wood, sold it for firewood, and I planted about five acres of walnuts. And uh, that's about 400 trees. My youngest son, he's in college, but he's living with me in the summers. He's my hired hand. But any young tree, for it to come into production properly, needs attention and it needs care. Walnuts are subject to being sunburned. But you didn't know that, did you? So what you do, you whitewash the tree. You just put white, thin paint over the whole tree while it's young. And I give my son the job of whitewashing these 400 baby trees, these saplings that I have out there. And I give him a couple buckets of paint white paint, and I give him a soft cotton glove. All he has to do is dip this glove in the paint, run it down the tree, and he's whitewashed the tree. But I explained to him, the future of these trees hangs upon you leaving two or three buds that look good that will grow into limbs. Dip your glove, do the paint, but don't take off all the buds. A simple process. My son is not happy with me that I give him this job. It's an all-day job, to say the least. Well, he does not go around the buds on the tree. He strips off everything growing on the tree. And I come back that afternoon to check on how he's doing. And I go, wow, you got that done quick. 
But when I begin to examine the trees, he has stripped off every bud on every tree. I've got 400 white sticks in the ground. I'm too devastated to be angry. You ever been that way? Just take the life out of me, why don't you? And this is going to set me back at least one year in planting, plus the cost of the trees and planting the trees. And I'm totally depressed. I'm just, he knows that I'm just fed up with him. And it's too late to replant trees for that year. And I said to him, what have you done? Took on Samuel's role. <laughs> it turns out, there's a good end to this story, that the trees were hardy enough. They had already got a good growth going that they grew new buds. And I go, yay. <laughs> and we only lost about a month of growth, not the full year and not the trees. So, But it was a great lesson for me in complete obedience. And hopefully it was to my son, because I tried to make it a good example for him. But partial obedience can be worse than complete disobedience. Jesus tells us a parable in Matthew 21. You may want to turn there. I'm going to read Matthew 21, verses 28 through 32. And Jesus is speaking to the, uh, the elders of Israel and the chief priests when he tells this parable. It's important for us to know who Jesus is speaking to. Matthew 21, verse 28. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterwards, he regretted it, and he went. Then he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I will go, sir. But he did not go. Now, here's the question of Jesus to the, the religious leaders. Which of the two did the will of the Father? They said to him, the first, Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots entered the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, the religious leaders, when they saw it, you did not afterwards relent and believe in him. Jesus asked the elders and the chief priests, what do you think? And they answer rightly. You know, what's your opinion, uh, elder? First son, go to work in my vineyard. He says, no, I'm not going to do it, dad. Second sons, okay, dad, I'll go, but he doesn't go. First son feels bad and he goes and works in the vineyard. Second son simply lied to his dad and did not go. Back to Jesus' question. Which of these two sons did the will of the father? Now, the chief priests and elders, they can easily discern who did the will of the father. And they say the son who changed his mind, changed his heart, got his heart right, 
and he went and worked. There's it's simply the truth that they're right. But here's the kicker. Here's the crux of the parable. And Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you, the religious leaders, tax collectors who are hated by everyone in Israel, known as sinners, harlots, the examples of sinners also, these two groups of people who are despised, but not only by you elders and chief priests, but by the general populace also. They will enter the kingdom of God before you do. So much for Jesus being politically correct. He has just told the religious leaders, he just rebuked the religious leaders right to their face. John the Baptist came to you in way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tainted, hated tax collectors, they believed. The harlots caught up in the sin of pleasure, they believed. And when you understood, chief priests, elders, when you understood, when it dawned on you, when you came to your senses, you might say, you did not relent or repent and turn. When it dawned on you, you were in the air, you still clung to your ways. You were not like the first son who in his disobedience repented and then went and worked in the vineyard. These elders, these chief priests, according to Jesus, saw the air of their ways, but they would not turn. Sometimes we think people uh, don't understand. They probably understand a little more than we give them credit for. The world is full of unrepentant, knowledgeable people who want to argue. They don't want to repent. They say something like, God, you do not do as I think you should do or what I think is right. You ever have that argument thrown at you? Well, if, you know, I would believe except for what the Lord did to my great-grandfather, gave him cancer, and he died a horrible, terrible death. And they blame God for that. John's baptism, when he came on the scene, required a change of attitude. And Jesus' parable is spot on. You religious leaders, even after seeing the error of your ways, you would not relent, you would not repent, you would not turn. King Saul, in our passage, will not wait for Samuel. He takes matters into his own hands. He offers sacrifices. He offers burnt offerings. He was not allowed to do that. That was a priestly duty, not a kingly duty. Saul is not a priest. He was not to do that. He said, bring me these offerings that I may offer them. 
For as soon as Saul had finished his offerings, who shows up? <laughs> Samuel the prophet. It's been said, and I like this, waiting 10 minutes more many times means receiving God's blessings. And there's all kinds of stories that emphasize that. Saul had waited probably six and three quarters of a day, but not seven. Almost seven, but not seven. Not the full seven days. And these few minutes, maybe an hour even, separate Saul from being established by God forever in his kingdom before God to being dismissed as king. Just a few minutes, a little time. Waiting for God, and this is the lesson for all of us, is never wasted time. It's never wasted. Waiting shows belief and confidence in God. Or waiting is simply showing faith. It's trusting in God's timing. Saul is presumptuous. He's impatient. And he has a few minutes exposing him with an unbelieving heart. And the results, the kingdom is taken away from him. Was this a test on Saul to wait? Yep. Sure was. <laughs> it was a test, the most severe test. And waiting can be the hardest thing we have to do sometimes. But it tells us, Scripture does, those who wait upon the Lord shall, not maybe, renew their strength. They will renew their strength. Waiting is faith being experienced exercised in God's word to us. That's all waiting is. God is faithful and his timing is never late. It's perfect. His timing is perfect. James gives us instructions on how to wait. Let me read you a couple verses. Therefore, be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until he, uh, he receives the early, excuse me, in latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Be patient, my friend. Be patient, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And while we wait, establish your heart before God. Obey God. And leave the consequences up to Him. And many times there are consequences. If I don't do something right now, I'm going to suffer, you know, this and that. And many times there are consequences to waiting but you know what? 
God can overcome the consequences. I'd rather have God's blessing than to be presumptuous. Waiting brings us into harmony with the will of God. It's getting our heart right to go along with what he's asking of us. Amen? Amen. Let me get you to stand. We'll close in prayer. Father God, we read about Saul. And it bothers us. Here's a man that had so much going for him. A handsome man, head and shoulders above all the other Israelites. And he had such a humble, good beginning. But then he became lifted up in pride. And Lord, that causes us to see the danger of pride. We do not want to be lifted up in pride before you and begin to make excuses to you about why we're disobedient. Lord, lead us into truth and then give us that character, that willingness to obey you when you ask hard things of us, Lord, and you will. You will test us just like you tested Saul. Lord, we want to be faithful. So by your spirit, cause us to be men and women, Christians of character. Help us, Lord, to be faithful to you and help us to be completely obedient to you. Not partially, Lord. We pray for that. We ask this in Jesus' name. So, Lord, do that good work in our hearts and lives. For we want to stand firm for you, Jesus, in all that we do. So help us. And we pray in your name. Amen.